Hello and welcome to our global S&OP community weekly podcast Brought to you by Ahmed Khalid and Ahmed Al-Hamamsi from Middle East Our global S&OP community podcast mission is to build a global community from supply chain, marketing, trade marketing, sales and finance all over the world Where everyone's voice could be heard and listened Every week we host a new episode with great thought leader in the S&OP industry. We believe that one word, one story, or one conversation could open up the light in the screen of your consciousness and you'll never be the same again. We discuss hot and trending topics with our subject matter experts by asking the right questions that uncover their valuable experience in our show. You can visit our website ahmedkhaled.com .co Stay tuned every week with our global S&OP community podcast. And our global thought leaders today are Yes, we have uh, today, of course, two of, uh, of great uh, guests who have a uh, big experience in, uh, in here in the, in the Middle East and all over Africa. We'll start with Grant Swanepoel. Grant, of course, uh, has uh, responsible for maintaining and building relationships in the Association of Supply Chain Management. He handled a lot of projects in Middle East and Africa. He has over 15 years of, uh, of, of experience, uh, mainly in areas of s demand planning, supply chain improvement. Uh, Grant is, uh, of course, it's uh, having his whole supply chain master's degree from University of Johannesburg, and he has a score P degree, of course. So we're talking about uh, huge experience here, and of course, from Association of Supply Chain Management, uh, previously known as Apex, and it's one of the biggest, of course, supply chain associations in uh, in, in the world. So we're welcoming uh, today uh, Grant uh, Swanepoel and uh, Ahmad. If you can introduce our second uh, guest, Douglas Kent. Sure. Uh, our second global thought leader today is Douglas Kent. So Douglas Kent is the executive vice president for strategies and alliances at ASCM. Uh, at Douglas, he played many roles. And Douglas has mostly over 35 years of transformational experience in advisory and consultancy. And uh, I believe what makes him very unique is not only the years of consultancy and advisory by himself, but because of his uh, experience in being a practitioner who understands the organization pain points because he was in the same place before. His practitioner experience was... um, with many large uh, multinational companies all over the world. He is an APEX uh, certified school instructor. He is specialized in supply chain strategies and supply chain planning. And uh, our topic today, even he is specialized in, which is the risk optimization. And uh, he traveled mostly uh, almost uh, all countries uh, around the world. And he led many workshops and educational program all over the world. So without further introduction, can I ask you please to welcome with us our thought leaders today and 
as usual, before just introducing them to Round our show, applause. please, please, the combo one, okay? <laughs> Hey, hello. Grant, Douglas, hello. What an amazing welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Great to have you. Great to have you. And just before we start our, our podcast, uh, Douglas, uh, I, I said that you were traveled around the world. How many countries that you traveled around the world? Just, I'm so curious to say it again. <laughs> well, I, my goal was meant to be higher if it wasn't for COVID, but so far <laughs> yeah, I, it's 76. Wow. wow. That's a record. Amazing. <laughs> I hope to get to 80 this year. So let's keep, keep our hopes. Yes, let's cross our fingers. <laughs> we'll be waiting for that. So before we start our podcast, if you allow us to send some greetings for our lovely audience today. Yeah, we see a lot of engagement today. Sure, Diana yes. Walsh from Ireland. Hi, my friend. How are you doing, Diana? Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you so much for tuning in, Diana. We have Anna. Good morning from USA. Thank you so Hello. much for tuning in. Thank you. We have our friend uh, Sarfraz is just joining right now. Thank you so much for tuning in. And Thank we are you, waiting Sarfraz. for your engagement definitely today. Our lovely friend Shadi Aljaki. Hi, dear brothers. Thank you so much Hi, for Shady. tuning in. Hi. As usual, thank you for being here. We have Elias. Good morning, all. Thank you so Good much morning. also for tuning in. We have our friend uh, Shazama. Shazama. Thank you, you also for tuning in, Shazama. Our friend Kate, hello from uh, NH in the USA. To hello, New Hampshire. Kate. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We have uh, Bizad. Greetings from, from Iran. Iran. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for Bizad. tuning in. We have too many engagement I can see today. From yeah, Nadal friends. from Jordan. Nadal for hello. Thank you so Thank much, Nadal, for tuning in. Also, we have uh, Al Balak. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in also Thank as well. Thank you, Adi, for joining. I think we will send Muhammad. some greetings all, all day tonight. Yeah, Mohammed Dondo, great <laughs> opportunity. Yes, Thank indeed you. it is. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Our lovely fan, Amina. Hello together. Thank you so much for Thank tuning you, in Amina, as usual. So I'll just drop it right now because I think we can send the greetings still end of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're weekend. waiting, of course, for questions from, from the audience. And we have an interesting subject today about supply chain risk. And as we said, it was something that wasn't uh, uh, so much uh, people i say would always keep the contingency plan uh, away but now it's the pandemic and what what happened the supply chain risk became a very hot topic so let's uh, jump to our uh, questions uh, today ahmed and uh, start of course with uh, with our audience definitely so before we start i keep asking our audience today feel free to ask our global yes. thought leaders today whatever questions that you have and definitely we'll jump into these questions to take it and ask it to our lovely uh, global thought leaders today so just uh, our uh, first question uh, i think that our podcast it's mainly related to the s and op so I, I would love to take this and relate it to our topic today so what does uh, s and op and planning 
have to manage the supply chain risk from your point of view, Dr. Douglas? Well, thank you. Well, of course, the, these these topics are, are interrelated. And as you both mentioned, certainly are very topical at the moment, particularly in the C-suite, because we've, hit, we've uh-huh. had just an enormous amount of supply chain disruption. So the topic of risk, of course, is is at the is at the C-seat level, and and they're asking their executive team to figure out ways they could better manage the risk. Um, so when we connect that to to planning, of course, uh, what has been historically the case uh, for decades now is that we are much that we are much better at execution than we are at planning, right? So. So we do better at source, make, and deliver execution functions than planning better ways to do that. So our maturity level of planning is historically low compared to execution. Yeah. Said another way, we're better we're better firefighters than fire preventers, right? So that's that's, <laughs> that's true. The case. That's true. So if you if you of course if you want to better manage your enterprise level risk. What you have to do is is plan scenarios around those risk events. And that's what's really becoming interesting for us today because there's just been so many unprecedented number of disruptions. So, of course, they're asking us, get better at at thinking through these scenarios. Plan plan around the the various uh, disruptive risks that can occur. And you also have to think about how you monetize those because you have to then prioritize those risks. Um, yeah. So it, and all of that activity shouldn't be sitting in isolation. It really needs to be inside of an SNOP process. Definitely. 100%. Thank you so much for this lovely one. And I would like just to listen also for Grant, uh, because I know that you're also uh, in SNLP love with expert, planning yeah. and yeah. SNLP experts. So from your experience... What's your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to echo D- Douglas's sentiment in this, and I've done a couple of um, projects with Douglas in the last few years, and we can almost with certainty say that uh, one of the gaps in the organization is the planning aspect. And I mean, it, it's it's sort of like there, there has to be the basics in place, right? So a lot of companies want to go, you know, we want to be an IBP master, right? Integrated business planning is like the goal yeah. because it's it's a buzzword. But what I think is very important is to get the basics right first, um, doing the, the forecasting, making sure we're doing a bottom-up forecast and a top-down forecast, um, comparing the forecast to the potential risks, as, as Douglas had mentioned, and comparing the high, low, mid scenarios, for example, right? Um, yeah. The quantification of this is very important because we need to know in six months' time, what do we believe the risk is going to be on, for example, inventory, or are we going to have a problem with one of our suppliers, et cetera? It's quite funny how, you know, things like Chinese New Year, for example, surprise us every year. I mean, <laughs> we know it's coming, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, so, that's that's true. And you so, find sometimes in the meetings that they're saying, uh, sorry, we cannot deliver because of the Chinese. It's no, it's well known. It's not a surprise. It's not a risk. It's not supposed to be a risk. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've been on the fire in the firing line in SNOP meetings, yeah. you know, being a person yeah. who's been the demand planner or the SNOP yeah. person, you know, saying, oh, we're not going to get stuck. But, you know, and, and we absolutely should, that should never be an excuse because anything yes. that we can vaguely anticipate we should be able to build in to an extent in our model yeah. um so so that means just so important then to have it in my mind and if i can mention one other thing about the snop is really ensuring we have the discipline 
um, for that because that helps yeah. us identify and continuously go back to the actions mm -hmm. that we said we were going to do to try to mitigate the risk. Um, the other component with SNOP, which we can never forget, is the link to the supplier. Uh, of course, the customer mm -hmm. demand, etc. But really ensuring we we even on a monthly basis go back to our supplier and ensure they are very aware of what our future plans are. Um, and that will help to just elevate some of the risks up to the future uh, or up to the surface. So yeah. de definitely some first thoughts. I mean, I can go on about SNOP for for hours. <laughs> four hours, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Sure it has. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got time. We can see that. I think that what you said, it's, it resonates totally with me, especially in the organization and the corporation right now. I think what Douglas and you, Grant, said, it's all related to the planning. And I think the maturity level from the organizations, when it comes to uh, assessing the risks inside the S&OP, I don't think that not all organizations, they have this, but most organizations that they don't have a, mature, a maturity level to assess the risks. It's just checking the box, taking the box that we are doing our risks. But are we mature enough to do the risks, risk analysis uh, in terms of uh, the supply chain end to end? Are we able to understand our real risks in terms of demand, supply, process risks, in terms of regulatory country risks, all of that, or just we are doing it just for doing it? And when it comes, as uh, Douglas said, it comes like a firefighting. But how are we able just to avoid all of this from the beginning? Are we planning it in the right way or just we are doing it just to take the box? This is kind of uh, this kind of maturity should be there inside the organizations because most organizations, they, they are very they have some ego, I would say, enough that we can do everything. But when it comes to risk analysis and risk uh, uh, management, somehow there are bigger risks than your organizations. So keep it to the experience and the expert people. So you have to come and ask consultancy because what you are trying to save, you will pay a lot in the future if you don't have the experienced people to uh, to solve these problems from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, definitely, definitely. Some organizations, they just uh, go away from asking consultancy because of the fees or because of something like that. But uh, <laughs> at the end, it fires uh, fight back because it's all about uh, cost efficiencies. It's all about uh, customer service level, about uh, cleansing the data, making sure that you have uh, the right uh, baseline forecast, all that. And uh, uh, companies, they really sometimes, uh, some of the organizations, they don't take care of that. And it ends up, it, fire, it fires back uh, on them. So definitely, I think we started to have some 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 questions in uh, yes. pouring in. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. So let's jump. Shoot yeah, the just, just no, just to say you're you're both spot on. And, and, and actually within the supply chain world, we have a metric, which is called VAR value at risk it value at risk is simply the probability of the risk event multiplied mm. by the impact that event has on our organization right mm. and we have these ways in which we can then take those and monetize them and stack them up and decide okay what is the likelihood of the event times its impact yeah. if that's great then we should be very thoughtful about our our potential mitigation efforts right and this is uh, this has to be a formalized process right when we take a look at you know because if we try to if we try to mitigate all of our risks we go bankrupt mm, yes. right yes. if we yes. ignore that the risks are there we go bankrupt right so you yeah, have right. to be able to take a look at 
both the macro and the micro risks, monetize them, stack them up for some degree of prioritization. And then we have a, a really a formalized way to build thoughtful mitigation strategies that will protect our business and get us from the firefighting into the fire prevention. <laughs> yes, 100%. I think. Yes, it's it's what you said. It's also related to the maturity of the organization. Are we aware of the risk and how we deal with the risk? Are we just... I do remember because I love ASCM and CSCP, they, they said that how you can find the ways of the, the risks. How can you... Sometimes that you can accept the risk. Sometimes, depends on your classification. Sometimes that you have to avoid the risk. And sometimes you can transfer risk from your organization to another exactly. organization. And another time you can mitigate risks, not totally, but some of it. So it depends on the maturity of the organization itself and the classification of the risk itself by just having brainstorming and understanding the magnitude of each risk. You can act by these four ways. Depends on the, the the budget. Depends on how are you willing to uh, to go with this risk. Definitely. And uh, depends also on the organization how it's how it's looking on the S and Sometimes they are looking on a very short term, like one month, two months. So they don't even see the risk. <laughs> they don't analyze the risk. They don't see the risks and the opportunities <laughs> and make a risk matrix like Douglas was uh, was saying. So it definitely depends on the level of the maturity of the organization. I 100%. agree here. Thank you. Let's uh, jump into yes, the first yeah. question. Dr. Ahmad Musa, thank you for tuning in. Yes. Uh, he's asking how digital twins gonna support handling current supply chain risks. Great. Shall we shall we take a stab at answering that question? Sure. sure, um, sure. So it, it goes right back to what we what we talked about earlier, which is mm -hmm. the ability to run scenarios, right? So yeah. Um, if you have a digital twin, you could you could you could run different risk scenarios and 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 already have the answer that you're looking for if that risk actually comes to life, right? So that's the key, right? When when companies are unprepared, it's because they haven't been able to run the scenarios effectively. So then yeah. they're trying to figure out what to do when the risk event occurs. What does that do? It makes our response latent, right? We take too long to be able to recover. Our agility, our resiliency is weakened because we don't have an answer to that. And I think we'll talk about it a little bit later, but this was we, we did an entire resiliency study in collaboration with the Economist Intelligence Unit. And in yeah. that study, basically, it, it really indicated is we don't do strategic scenario planning. We don't have we, we talk about, you know, different risk events occurring, but we we're not prepared for for the response to those. We don't have a playbook that we need no. that when the risk happens, we're able to to respond more effectively more more efficiently certainly quicker than without having that playbook strategy so the a digital twin is is a way in which we can use that aspect to to run these scenarios become more prepared and have that playbook ready yeah Great. thank you douglas thank you douglas you have any, any thoughts uh, grant with the youth experience I uh, I absolutely agree with Douglas, and I think that um, you know you, it, using um, digital capabilities within your SNOP process is is become essential, right? You want to do as much as possible of that, especially at the tail end of the you know the SKUs with maybe high volume, um, you know the SKUs that you do you sell a lot of, and you can easily forecast for also building to, into that um, 
risk uh, elements, right? And, and those risks, as we looked at earlier, would include not just the economic risks, but the environmental risks mm. um, and the ethical risks as well, you know, sitting into those. And you can definitely do that a lot easier with uh, using the uh, digital technology. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. We'll jump into the next question from our friend Chazama. She's asking, is supply chain management become completely digital all over as you have traveled all over the world? So I think this question is asked <laughs> Douglas, definitely. Yes. <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think what, first of all, we should define what digital capabilities really mean. So at ASCM, we did a, a very large partnership with, with Deloitte, and we build what's called the digital capabilities model. Um, and think about those words, digital and capable, right? So when we yeah. think about digital, it's not about doing the wrong things faster. Right? <laughs> We're talking about really rethinking what it is that we do, um, whether that's our internal ways of working inside of our own four walls or how we engage with our supply chain trading partners, our customers and our suppliers. So when we think about digital, it's really about building a new set of capabilities um, that will change the overarching process. So we're not just trying to automate an existing set of processes. We're really re-engineering how we connect internally with, with uh, from department or function to function and with our various uh, ecosystem stakeholders. So what we found is an answer to the question is yes, everywhere in the world right now, because most people had digital agendas, five, 10 year plans that got massively accelerated when we had to rethink how we do business in the world of COVID. So, so this is, you know, this isn't country specific by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody had to figure out different ways to service a customer, to, to interact with each other, to uh, continue collaborations with, with customers and suppliers, et cetera. So really what we see is that digital has really started to transform the world. The hard part about it, of course, is it is a new way of working. It is not the same set of processes. And we don't necessarily, and what concerns me the most is not whether or not we have access to technology to digitally transform our world, but are our skills of the individuals who have to do that work, are they, are they increasing in maturity at the same speed as, as utilizing the technology? Mm -hmm. So that's where the real concern is. Yeah, we had to speed up, accelerate the agenda, adapt new technologies and ways of working. Now, can our people, can our talent keep pace? Exactly. I think that's that's the main idea, the skills of, uh, of the people and how to make sure that uh, people are well trained uh, to, to adapt to this uh, technologies because, because I always say the success of uh, any process depends like 60, 70 and sometimes 80 percent on the people uh, on the ground and on the people uh, who executes the programs and who are part of the SMOP, for example. So people, people, people. I agree with you. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you, Douglas Ahmed. We'll jump into the next question. I have many questions today. So our friend, Mai, thank you for tuning in, Mai. She's asking, do you think that building inventory and evaluating inventory levels at every node will become an integral part of the SNOP? I can definitely I take a, a first. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a good sure. question. I can definitely take a first stab at this. Um, building too much inventory is also a risk, right? And, yeah. and I think the question should never be, 
um, should we put more inventory in? It's the question is what is the right inventory level we should have to support yeah, either the variability of demand or the variability of supply, supply. because that is the reason we have inventory. Um, so, so that what's important to make sure we understand is the policy around inventory. Uh, it's not about keeping one million dollars of the SKU or this brand or whatever. It's about how many, how much cover do we need to support the potential risk, which is the variability in the forecast, whether it's on a supply or demand side. Um, it's much more detailed than I think just saying we need more inventory. And to answer the second part of this question, which I think is about every node, uh, we do have concepts like DDMRP, for example, um, which would look at like how much inventory you keep at every node. But I would I would apply the same logic to that: is break down that supply chain to where we see the biggest variability, um, the biggest risk, and that's potentially where you may need more inventory. Yes, right. The plan is never to 100% cover for all eventualities and all possible variations because you will spend so much money on inventory that you won't have a business. But what's really important is that we make sure we understand as much as possible the risk and put the actions or the activity in the place or the node within the supply chain that will have be, be the most beneficial. Right. So this is a, it's a brilliant question. And I think there's so much depth to this, but it really does require that very detailed analysis in, in, in any case. Yeah, very, brilliant very, question uh, and brilliant answer too. Go ahead. Amazing. <laughs> so, Douglas, over to you, Douglas. Yeah, May, great question and so topical. So everyone we're talking to today is asking the same question. Or, or is just in time dead? Right. Um, are we moving from JIT to JIC just in case? Right. And it all relates back to inventory. And what we see happening, of course, is that companies, the, the number one response to risk is to build up inventory to protect yourself, just as Gron yeah. mentioned, because of volatility on the demand side, which, of course, we've seen massive volatility shifts in demand and also concerns about uh, supply assurance. And we see that yeah. as well lead times yes. being extended and, 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 and customer, customers not receiving their supplies from their suppliers on time. So the number one response to that is building inventory. Of course, this is a very expensive proposition. It may yes. be the easiest way to protect yourself against risk, but it also in and of itself also has risk, right? So what we're seeing is that companies are really thinking hard about this movement from JIT to JIC, right? But, but what we see is they're, they're, they're educating themselves on inventory policy and strategy. Whereas before, they may not have had as much robustness built into that, right? Uh, inventory, you know, managing on a JIT level became a little bit easy. We got, got a little self-satisfied with the way to do it. Uh, and companies stopped worrying about building, again, the skills necessary to thoughtfully think about, as is in May's question here, what inventory should be where in what state of that inventory should it be and in which node should that be placed to optimize our ability to service a customer at the lowest possible cost. So yeah. companies are getting a lot smarter and building a lot more intelligence in analytics, et cetera, to really answer those critical questions so that we can really think about is inventory an asset or a liability? 100%. Uh, I think one of the uh, most challenges here that we are, when we have some challenges, we just react. But do we have the time to think what is the main reason? As you said, the Douglas, and as you said, Grant, 
one of the challenges that most people that they are reacting to the, that that problem itself but are we visiting our sourcing strategy in case why do we have this all of this kind of inventory level and all of these nodes in our route to market or the go to market that we have in that shall we invest right now on changing our sourcing strategy because i see after covid 19 many uh, organizations they changed drastically their uh, sourcing strategies and they moved from globalization or centralization into decentralization and localization regardless what will be the impact on their pnl or income statement but they just prefer or just want to mitigate any sustainability challenges in the marketplace for their company regardless this that's why i think this these questions should be asked very aggressively by the organization itself are we having the right sourcing strategies are we uh, what is the percentage of our uh, importing portfolio versus our local portfolio how can we uh, reduce our importing portfolio and uh, let me be very very clear on that localization will not solve the main problem because people think when they think that we are localizing our suppliers the problem will be solved totally no not at all because when you localize a supplier, he has multiple tiers of suppliers. And definitely all of this will have some of the unique materials or materials will be also imported. But at least you have a time to react and you have a buffer in your uh, supply chain nodes that you can react accordingly. But we need to think in the other way. Are we using the right sourcing strategies? Yes or no? This is the, the, that kind of things that most organizations should think about it. Totally, yeah. totally, totally agree. And of course, as uh, as uh, I cannot add uh, much to that, but uh, as we are talking about, it's not only about building safety stock, it's about safety time and uh, the time of, uh, of moving of inventory from uh, one node to another. We must think about that. And uh, I think it's uh, it's it's good time for people of, of sales. They put too much pressure now on us, build the inventory, <laughs> and uh, don't, I don't care about the stock levels and uh, just stack always, up inventory. <laughs> and uh, finance and supply chain try to scream about the cost and uh, of the inventory and the inventory holding cost, but nobody's hearing about it now. We're in time of crisis. I need to sell, so stack up inventory. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very good point because we're also finding that, uh, again, learning how to do demand shaping to de-risk yeah. that, that over, over an abundance of inventory and, and, and using that with the sales team to, to further impact the, the demand in such a way to relieve the, the inventory uh, you know, stock up or pile up. That yes. we might have. Yes. Also, yes. it's a critical part of a, a, a demand shaping is a critical part of an SOP process, right? Yeah. 100%. I think we have another question. Let's take it. I From think we Dr. have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I told you the engagement is yeah. great today, of course, yeah. and we're so happy to have you both. Definitely. So, Dr. Lab, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, he's asking with systems working on real time online basis, why can't we have zero inventory or just in time inventory? which will be a competitive age for a best pricing and better customer experience. Boy, that would be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that would be first we, have, <laughs> first, we have to answer what is real time, right? Um, wow. Because that has a different meaning depending on who you're talking to as well. I think you've, I, I, I think the doctor has described it very well, the, the, yes. the, the panacea and the, the, the wishful thinking that we all would have that 
all, all systems are integrated and all data is exchanged on a real-time basis. And we have complete transparency. Well, unfortunately, I have yet to find a single organization that could fulfill that mission. Um, again, I'll, I'll go back to where one of the key problems are that, that was really one of the findings from our EIU study on resiliency was that we, have, we don't have the control tower visibility that's necessary to fulfill this dream that the doctor has put out for us, right? <laughs> yeah. And if we did, and, and companies did have multi-hierarchy visibility from customers, customer to supplier, supplier, including channel partners and transportation, third-party logistics companies, and our suppliers, suppliers, inventory levels or cycle times. <clears throat> if we had that level of visibility, then of course, and that information was being exchanged, uh, you know, consistently on a real-time basis, then perhaps we could get to uh, the zero inventory or, or truly, truly just in time. Unfortunately, again, we have a lot of resistance to uh, to doing so because companies don't like to share information outside of themselves. Yeah. There's trust-related issues. Um, there's uh, issues relative to data integrity. Um, there's concern about you know how decision how quick our decision processes can be even if we speed up the flow of information. Can we as an organization actually take decisions quick enough? So there's a lot of barriers to achievement, and technology is not one of them, right? There's a lot of barriers to achieving this control tower approach to gain the visibility on a multi-hierarchical basis, and most of them are are around people, around trust, around data. Etc. It's not the technology. So we have been we have been given the gift of the technology, but unfortunately we can't Electros. absorb it. Yeah, we can't absorb yeah. it. Yeah, brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> I agreed on that, and I think that you remind me, Douglas, about something related to the just-in-time inventory and zero inventory. So uh, I think people, everyone, wish to have like just-in-time. Every one of us. Uh, Inventory is something that we need to look at it, definitely. But just in time, it has cost. Definitely, it has cost on the other side. It's, it's not something easy that you can have all of your suppliers that you'll have it just in time. It has cost on the other side. And I do remember one of the challenges from an organization. I had the, the, the experience with that. Uh, some people think that just in time, I can use some consignment models. So by this way, when I have a consignment models, I have all my materials. I can bury all of my materials at the supplier side. But this is not the truth because, again, yes, most probably that you're not holding uh, anything at your books, but at the same time, it's like a temp bomb. So people or the planning uh, department, if they don't take care about what is in their, out, out of their books and with the suppliers themselves and use this in, in the other way that can really harm the, the organization, it could lead to a devastation and real big risk if they don't think about it right now. So consignment model, just in time, think people, they think that just in time, uh, when I order something from a supplier, I have it like a centralization and the order from many suppliers. And once I use this material, I'll pay for this. But definitely this is a time bomb because if you have a perishable products, if you have materials that has uh, materials that like have a, a shelf lifetime, Definitely, you could have some challenges if you have negative bias, if you have some obsolete stocks, if you have many risks on that time. So don't mislead yourself about just in time. I should have everything just in time. It has another cost on the other way. 
So think both ways. This is mm. what I want to say in that talk. Mm. Yeah. Maybe just a, a quick, a quick add and something that it just yeah. popped into my mind looking at this question is the internet of things, right? And understanding yeah. the, uh, the fact that by understanding risks upfront more gives us an opportunity to handle the risk better going down the line and things like inventory. So technically this could impact your policy or inventory policy. So having more information upfront means we may be able to even hold less inventory because we have the opportunity to see sooner when a risk could arise. Um, so there's definitely this moving towards that. But I want to just emphasize what Douglas <laughs> first mentioned. It's a bit of a utopian um, <laughs> mindset. Where everything is perfect, but but I think we strive yeah. for it for sure. Yeah, Thank you. We'll jump into the next question. Yeah. We have our friend Ahmad Qasim. Thank you for tuning in, Ahmad. He's asking, what do you think about uh, just-in-time versus the current challenges in supply chain all over the world? Yeah, and I think it goes back to the earlier question, and, and it's, it's becoming an interesting topic from, uh, from both professionals as well as academics um, saying, is, is lean dead? basically uh you know lean, it, it it it's it is an interesting i mean i i you know could could fight with um you know a few of the lean uh leaders in the world and say again you know let, let let's talk about this um again back to is inventory an asset or a liability right um if it's there to enable sales then it certainly is an asset right but if you don't manage it effectively it quickly becomes a liability um so i think I think what we're going to see again is this buildup of internal capabilities to optimize inventory and, and, and across the various nodes. This is known as supply chain network optimization, right? Supply chain network optimization takes a look at the flow of goods and it creates the, the ability to, to run scenario modeling to say, if I want to maintain this level of service, um, at what what is the most optimal cost of doing so? And then that gets translated down to inventory positioning across the various nodes. And companies, again, probably didn't put as much, as much robustness into running optimization scenarios as they are now. And if they did, it was more um, what I would call episodic. So if something changed in my network design, I would rerun an optimization rather than internally build the capability. So, you know, episodically, maybe outsource it, say, you know, say, for example, if a company uh, did an acquisition and suddenly they had additional distribution centers or warehouses or manufacturing facilities around the globe, they would episodically run this optimization. They didn't internally build the capability to do so. But now we have to run it at a cadence. If we really want to manage just-in-time inventory flows and levels, then we have to run it at a much more frequent cadence, which means I have to build that capability inside my organization. How do I internally have the capability to run optimization on a more frequent cadence to really achieve the objective of having as just-in-time-like levels of inventory as I can? Beautiful. Thank you so much for this uh, lovely answer. We're jumping to the next question. Let's go. Our friend uh, Muhammad Amir Khan, thank you for tuning in. He's asking, from where do you think a supply chain manager should start identifying and analyzing risk in S&OP? Everywhere. 
<laughs> I knew he was gonna say that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's different there's different types of risks, right? And I think the different types of risks fall into different places in in your network and in your supply chain. So, I mean, if we look at, look at a typical SNOP, it's a demand review, supply review, the balancing function, and then an executive SNOP, um, and all of those areas can have specific risks. I mean, on the demand yeah. side, we know that's the customer. What if the customer goes to a competitor? What happens in the market? You know, all those types of risks, uh, more commercial kind of things. And then we have the supply risks, right? And I mean, even if we look at what, uh, and, and we, Douglas had mentioned it a bit earlier, the resiliency survey that was done uh, a couple of months ago, and, and a lot of what is included in there, the types of risks, the risks that came out, um, can a lot of them boil down to supply-related issues? So not getting the supply of products that you requested or that you had ordered mm. uh, for various reasons. So a lot of risks that's there as well, right? But the important part is the communication and the linking between those two and then that balancing function. This is what we could sell <laughs> if we had an unconstrained environment and made all the, all the stock available. Yeah. This is what now we... Think the risks are bringing those in and overlaying that right if we really were to redefine snop snop is really primarily about risk management um mm -hmm. i mean if we're doing the forecast so that we can assess risks risk so that we can still supply our customer what they wanted uh, but yeah I, I won't i won't define that in a specific place definitely not if you allow me if you allow yeah, me give something for douglas and the grant please please Deserved, I think, to our uh, great uh, <laughs> experts today. They are taking the questions very lightly, and uh, we have a lot of uh, questions uh, today coming from uh, from the audience. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, for, uh, thank you, for Grant. Thank you, Douglas. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you allow me, I'll jump into the next question. Sure. So, our friend uh, Bizad, thank you for tuning in. He's asking a supply chain experts. What is your key learning from supply chain uh, interruptions during the pandemic? So I, I think what, what the pandemic illuminates for us is that we don't have strategic <clears throat> and operational strength around managing resiliency. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly the study that Grant and I both have mentioned indicated just that. So we have, we have aspiration, but we haven't operationalized it into our business model, right? Yeah. Our operating model doesn't really, um, wasn't mature enough to, to allow us to, to, to really drive resiliency throughout the organization. So I think the, the pandemic illuminated that weakness. And that's why you see a lot more focus on how do we manage risk in a better way, both strategically and operationally? Um, what, are, what are our vulnerabilities in doing so? So what we've been studying on the back end of the survey is what vulnerabilities do companies uh, have? And we, we give them the ability to do a self-assessment across both strategic and operational risk so they can understand those vulnerabilities and they can do something about it. Right. Um, because it is clear the pandemic is one disruption, but we've been faced with many. Right. Supply mm -hmm. shortages from chips, you know, uh, 
accelerating prices on key commodities, suppliers extending lead times two and three X. The cost of a container shipment from China to the US is 10 X what it was 24 months ago, right? These, uh, you know, a, a boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal. How many more do we want, right? <laughs> and so, so if we're not strengthening our ability to, to build resiliency into our operating model, then we've missed what the pandemic, unfortunately, has illuminated as an opportunity for us to improve. And of course, one of those ways, as, as Grant rightly mentioned previously, is SNOP inside of SNOP, and it goes to the previous question as well, is where we should be talking about that. That's where the conversation has to occur. If it's not embedded in our integrated business planning and SNOP processes, then we're over here talking about planning and we're over here talking about big levels of risk. And if those two things aren't integrated together, then we go to what you talked about earlier, which is we, 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 have a very myopic focus on we talk about risk as it relates to the next eight weeks yes right? mm -hmm. we're in firefighting then this is what's known mm -hmm. as sales and operations execution snop yes. if we have yes. a short-term focus and we think our planning focus is in that short-term cycle we will have missed the opportunity to identify risks before they happen definitely definitely great answer thank you douglas thank you douglas. let me jump into the next question from our friend Mai. Mai. She is asking what is the role of SNOP in deciding uh, about outsourcing? Boy, May is coming up with all the good ones here, right? Yeah, so. May is uh, <laughs> very actively participating. Thank can, you can for her, the great questions. Can, can we give her applause? Please. Yeah. please. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> this is a really this is a really interesting one because um, what we are seeing is whenever there's an elevated level of risk, we oftentimes are rethinking about key things like outsourcing or insourcing, offshoring or reshoring. Right? These are big, big decision points. Um, and what we are seeing is that companies are doing more verticalization in order to manage risk better. Uh, a key example of that you've seen, you know, big some big box uh, retailers in the U.S., for example, are now uh, in basically they're buying their own container ships, right? They are actually yeah. going out and going to manage their own container shipments because they're trying to lower the risk of, of uh, you know, delivery assurance. So, or, or or I buy a big supplier, right? Uh, you see people, you know, buying their own chip manufacturers or, or building their own foundries in order to get an integrated circuits, things like this. I mean, Amazon owns their own bloody airport, for goodness sakes, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is exactly where we see, again, in, in heightened times of risk, uh, dis key decisions about insourcing and outsourcing, uh, offshoring or reshoring, etc. These are critical decisions. And the higher the level of risk, the more we want to control it. So we tend to want to insource more when the risk is heightened. Yeah. Yes, definitely, definitely. This comes uh, back uh, to uh, decisions of like make or buy or things like that or owning your own fleet. And like you said, in uh, these times of risk, you try to control the risk by uh, buying maybe or owning your own. We do own, a terrible uh, job of it, by the yes, way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then you're having a problem because you're not the expert. And on the fleets, uh, I've seen some companies there, they don't know how to maintain the 
like uh, efficiency in it or or they don't know how to mm-hmm. maintain efficiencies on the rides or or know anything about fleet management and this causes a lot of uh, a lot of issues and the costs are, are are higher at the end than than what you pay for example for an outsourced company that they have the the network they have the experience so it's, uh, you have to 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 manage or uh, think about the risks and benefits when when take a step. That's why, as you said, it's a, it's a huge step. To, to yeah, we about. call it selective amnesia. We forgot <laughs> why we outsourced it to begin yes. with, right? Yes, we, yes. Because we didn't have the capability, and then we have selective yes, amnesia, exactly. and then we decide, oh, I know. Let's, Let's do it, it again. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very devastating when it comes to outsourcing. Yeah, let me just I'll put my experience mm-hmm. here. When it comes to outsourcing, and I see many organizations, they are cost-driven. They don't care about what happens, but what yeah. they are looking for, it's how they can reduce the, the, their landed cost and how they can save uh, some of their margins so that they can say that our supply chain cost is reduced by X amount. And we are doing this for the business uh, in terms of margins. But this is just blind approach. Cost many organizations a lot in the future. When it comes, especially with uh, supply chain partners, if I'm talking with uh, distributors, if I'm talking about uh, suppliers, when you are outsourcing something that a company could have, and they have like a unique value proposition on it or some competitive advantage over the competition and you outsource this to them, this, I see many organizations, they regret a lot about these decisions because it was just blindly by the cost. They need to reduce the cost. And the cost that they estimated just as a saving, it was just neglected about the, the just, I would say, the losses that they encounter for when it comes uh, just doing a contract with their outsourcing supplier or whatever. They lose a lot of market shares. They lose a lot, lose a lot of distribution. They lose a lot of their IMS or uh, demand. So when it comes to outsourcing, you have to take the time and you have to do your studies and supplier risk analysis. How can you take this into consideration? Just don't be blinded only by one element. Cost could be one element from the outsourcing, not all the elements. That's why just I want to put my experience on that. Don't look only to the cost. There are many elements behind the cost. Yeah, definitely. Yes. So, uh, I'll just jump into the next question. Time is flying as usual. (laughs) So, we have uh, our friend, Ala Hassan. Thank you for tuning in. So, he's asking, some operations are complex. How to operate with the part that is not handled systematically? I, th- I think he's saying sort of what what part is not handled by a system, right? Or what mm, part is a little yeah. bit too complex? Yeah, I, I mean, just from a demand planning perspective, which is uh, part of the work that I used to do, um, it's about the art and the science of demand planning, right? And sometimes you have to put a little bit more art into it. Um, so definitely with experience and with understanding the numbers really, right? Um, these are the par- parts of the things that sometimes you need to go beyond the system for. What I think the system helps very much for is to give you a baseline, right? But you still need to cleanse data. Um, the system doesn't necessarily know unless you've somehow built it in there that you had a, uh, three years ago, we had a big promotion and we reduced the price significantly and that's why we had the spike. But it's very easy to forget these things, right? And to just apply these in the future. Um, so I think it's important to 
identify specifically what's typically the A items in, in the in the group, you know, in your organization or the SKUs, um, and make sure that you do review those numbers, right? Don't ever just allow the system to do it by itself and never review it. Um, make sure that that review process is always done. But I think as far as possible, it's to systemize and automate the process. Yeah. Good Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Grant. So I think I'll, I'll, this question came also into my mind. I think we have many questions, but I'm so curious. To ask yeah, this I think right? we need uh, <laughs> a lot of sessions with our experts here. And uh, as we expected, uh, a lot of engagement and thank you for, for the audience. Whatever we can take uh, today, we will try uh, Grant, uh, uh, me, Ahmed, uh, or uh, even Douglas to take it uh, offline, of course, and answer all your questions. Go ahead, Ahmed. Yeah, yeah. so I'm just cu so curious about, uh, based on, I know that Grant and uh, Douglas, you have great experience all over the globe, but we need your uh, experience and your uh, view on what's happening in the Middle East right now in, in terms of risk assessment and risk management. What are those uh, most challenges that you have with your consultancy and advisory experience, especially in Middle East? Grant, do you want to take the first side of it and I'll, I'll layer on? Definitely. I, I think I think what's important in the Middle East right now is a, a future view. Um, and this is you can see this in many of the countries in the region who have Vision 2030. Um, there's some five-year visions, there's some longer visions, and, and these visions have very specific elements to them. The question for us as supply chain practitioners um, is how do we support those visions and also take advantage of the opportunities that it may bring. Um, so in Saudi Arabia, there's a very big drive for supply chain and logistics competency, for example. Um, Things like skills development, for example. I mean, this is a key one, right? I, I think I think there's there's a renewed focus on being prepared for the future, and this is all you know what risk is about. I think absolutely the Middle East has experienced all of its own risks, just like the rest of the world has, and will continue to do it. Geopolitical risks are a big problem, right? I mean, these are things we know we know exist. Um, climate risks are are huge too, um, but this is not necessarily unique to the Middle East, right? I think the, the benefit that many countries in the Middle East have right now is that vision. Um, and that's mm. going to be something that's very powerful and make sure we need to make sure we keep aligned to um, going forward. Yeah, yeah I think you, just to <clears throat> the uh, there's a there's a lot of, um, you know, interesting aspects of how the Middle East becomes a more global player, right? And and all the signs are super positive. What I like about what Grant has mentioned is, you know, if you take a look at each of the country visions and each country does pretty much have its own vision, but the underlying elements of that vision are very much the same. Um, it's about keeping people happy. You know, you don't see that in a lot of places. It's about really respecting um, our ecological aspects of our supply <clears throat> chains. We're all about things around sustainability. It's, it's about managing ethical concerns. It's, there's, so, there's so much goodness in the visions that are commonly shared across the various countries. But I think um, you know, what, what is going to make it successful, and certainly what we see, as Grant has mentioned, as a trend, is that you're taking that visionary aspiration again, but you're looking at how do I enable that to actually happen? 
And, and what is true and what we recognize as an association is that investment in skills and competencies to, to bring that to life, to fulfill that vision is actually being backed up by government driven funding, yes. which is, yeah. which is not always the case, right? In fact, we're looking at this globally to say, you know, what, what does the, what does the, uh, what is it that the globe looks like in terms of the government's willingness to put, uh, you know, a penny, <laughs> to put pounds and pennies forward to actually fund education to make uh, training and supply chain accessible to, to people, to build a, a, a career path for these essential people to make that vision actually happen. Um, and, and by far, I would say, from a cross-regional perspective, the Middle East is actually doing that. They're putting, as we say, the, the money where the mouth is, right? It's to say, I know this is a key element of enablement to build skills and competencies, and I will fund that. And that, for me, in addition to all the other underlying commonality across the different visions, is super exciting and probably unique to the region. Yeah, I think yeah, I I will echo you this uh, about this because I have experience here in uh, in the Middle East. I've seen the government started to, as you said to fund that. Even they started to, to hire experts to to talk to the to talk to the companies about the performance of their supply chain, the performance of their processes. Where do you think they are? The level of maturity of the supply chain. So we started to, to see that, and we started to see to see that more after the pandemic. Even the word supply chain and everybody. Is is, is talking about supply chain and improving the uh, the, the supply chain, and as you said, it's uh, started to be uh, powered by uh, by by the government. So yes, it started to uh, we started to see this uh, on the ground from my experience. Yeah. So I think time fly as yeah. usual. <laughs> we didn't feel it, but before we close this beautiful episode, definitely, I'd like to ask you, Grant and uh, Douglas. What are those big things that ASCM is looking after right now in the Middle East and how you can help organizations and people in the coming period? Uh, maybe, Douglas, I'll just start with the, the fact that we have a network of, uh, of companies, of partner organizations in the Middle East and all over the world. Um, if you go to the ASCM.org website, you'll be able to find a, a partner of ASCM that can support with many of the uh the the models the processes the frameworks and also the training obviously the apex training and certifications that we do offer um in fact we have got one or two new partners as well in the region um we have symbios consulting i'd like to mention um since they're in egypt mm -hmm. and i know a lot of we have egyptian people in this in this <laughs> audience here as well um and they're actually having a conference on the 5th and 6th of march um if you are in cairo uh, which is about supply chain excellence and digital transformation and also you could learn more about some of the ascm products mm -hmm. at that session too which will be which will be fantastic um but yeah we we have everywhere in the middle east and i don't want to exclude anyone else because there's so many <laughs> but um absolutely that's how we would go about typically supporting companies um through ascm products yeah, we've we've onboarded more new partners in the Middle East than any other region in the world over the last 12 months, to Grant's point. The other thing I would mention is um, we took a very strategic decision this year to make all of our frameworks and standards ungated from being a member of ASCM. So now it's available to anyone in the world. Our score model standards, for example, wow. our enterprise certification standards, 
etc. Our digital capabilities model, these used to be required in order to access it at the detailed level, you had to be a member of ASCM. So yeah. with our community and responsibility hat on, we now remove that gating. And so all of those standards are available to anyone in the world. So I encourage you to, to definitely investigate that. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, these are, these are tools uh, that will help you manage your supply chain in a better way. Um, so please, you know, for the, for the global audience here, if we can, you know, further assist or develop new things that, that you really see as a high value proposition, let us know. Uh, the things that we have developed, these very key assets of frameworks and standards are now available globally. Wow. That's, I think, is a great initiative from the system of uh, supply chain management, especially in these times of uh, disruptions in supply chain. Uh, a lot of people, I think, will, will benefit definitely from that. So thank you, Douglas uh, Grant. The beautiful so, session. Uh, we're, we're, we're honored to, to have you today. And I'd like to thank also all of our audience. Uh, lovely engagement. We had so much uh, fun, I think, taking all these questions. We did not uh, go, of course, <laughs> with the questions, as Ahmed uh, told you, we'll take a lot of questions today. But uh, definitely, I think we covered the most of uh, what uh, the subjects that we wanted uh, to cover. Uh, Ahmed, uh, if you have some final words. Sure, sure. I, I would say I echo your voice. It, it's a pleasure to have you, Douglas and Graham, today. The amount of knowledge that we received today as we spoke, it's a knowledge that, that we will never find in books based Definitely. on an extensive years of experience. 35 years of experience from Douglas and 15 years of experience from Grant. So if you echo all of this or add it up, it's 50 years of experience only in one hour. Definitely, it's our pleasure. And uh, I believe that there will be a lot of collaboration in the coming period. And we'll be waiting for you here. And let's have another session based on this lovely uh, audience mm -hmm. and engagement. Let's have another topic that we can cover based on your lovely experience. Thank you so much. Would be our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Douglas. Thank, Thank you, all Thank our you. audience. Thank Take you, care. Take Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Global S&OP Community Podcast. We hope that you have absorbed some values from this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to be notified every week with the new episode. You can visit our website ahmedkhaled.co or ahmedkhaled.co We believe that one word, one story or one conversation could transform your life. Stay tuned next week with a great thought leader in S&OP. Have a wonderful week ahead.